Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, we'll dig deep into the U.S. government's latest labor force numbers on job gains and losses, and we'll question the accuracy and reliability of the data as leading indicators. Dick Beauvais once again says the data is suspect, and he'll explain why he thinks the markets rallied after the most recent numbers. Matt Van Alstyne reveals some revisions in the labor numbers he describes as startling. Can we expect a surge in auto loan delinquencies and bad debt as used car prices fall sharply? We look at that. Consumers are ratcheting up more debt on rising interest rates. We look at what that could mean for the US economy. Dick Bovey is forecasting more bank failures. He expects trouble for smaller banks specializing in consumer lending. He'll explain why. We'll also look at China and at Russia, where Dick says the government has reported a recent profit on its books. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, you're very welcome. It's episode 77. We had a lot of new numbers from the Labor Department in recent days on the unemployment rate, uh, labor numbers, jobs created, jobs lost. It's quite a feast. I know you have strong opinions on these numbers, Dick. I don't know if you would say it's all a dog and pony show. Um, the numbers uh, and the layers have to be peeled away. Just in brief, U.S. employers, this is the popular number out there, added 209 thousand jobs in june and that was down by almost one third from may uh, the smallest gains since december 2020 at the um, height of covid uh, job gains were revised down from april and may by a total of 110,000. unemployment rate now is at 3.6 percent in june down from 3.7 percent but there's ways to slice and dice this there's the seasonally adjusted non-seasonally adjusted the establishment numbers the household numbers um your thoughts and opinions dick and matt and by the way matt's coming to us by phone today again okay well basically uh as we've pointed out a number of times in the past when the labor numbers come out uh the uh Department, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out four numbers to show what is happening in the labor market. Uh, and that's too many numbers. It's confusing to the marketplace. 
So the marketplace grabs on to one number, which is what they call the establishment seasonally adjusted number. They get that number because the Labor Department has hired the Census Bureau, and the Census Bureau calls a bunch of companies and say, says, did you hire people today or did you not hire people this month? Uh, and that, that number is then statistically manipulated, and they come out with a number which, as you correctly indicated, John, shows that in June there was an increase of 209,000 uh, employees. Now, the Labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out a whole bunch of other numbers, but let's forget them, all right, because the market only focuses on this one number, the, 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 the uh, how many jobs were added according to these companies uh, and the seasonal adjustment of that number. Now, the market was very disappointed by the 209,000 number because it was below estimate and it was uh, relatively low you know, vis-a-vis the numbers that have been reported for the last, I don't know, number of years. So what was this, in fact, disappointing number or not? And that gets to something else that the Bureau of Labor Statistics does that Matt has described, you know, repeatedly, uh, uh, in, in almost month by month, as these numbers come out. And this is something called the birth death index. Uh, and if you want, I'll just let you know Matt describe it to you. But basically, birth death index showed was that the Labor Department thinks that in the month of May. There was something like uh, 100, uh, 233,000 new jobs uh, created from new companies that started up in June. They thought that 26,000 new jobs were created by new companies that started up in June. That enormous difference mm. is the whole reason that the establishment number, the, the, the number that everybody likes to look at, the 209,000 numbers, was below where you know people thought it would be. Now, it's it's just all flim-flam in my book. Um, yeah, I, I was struck by a couple of things with this job report. The first one was the revision to May. Um, you know, they took off 110,000 jobs immediately from the May number as if someone noticed that that birth death, number, birth death index number was uh, abnormally high. And the other thing that's kind of astounding is, you know, the, the continuing disalignment of the BLS survey and the household survey um, the gap right now, by my calculation, is around 2.5 million jobs. And this has been going on basically since the Biden administration um, took over. And historically, you know, the, when, when they eventually revert to the same number, it's the household survey that wins. And I'm starting to kind of move over to Dick's camp in that I'm losing faith in this, in this report because <laughs> it just, it's, it just every month it gets further and further out of whack of the more, you know, the broader survey that shows that there's 2.5 million fewer jobs in this country. And the biggest reason for that is this birth death, in, birth death index, which, you know, on principle makes a lot of sense. There's businesses that start every month, there's businesses that go out of business every month, and someone is supposed to try and guesstimate how that impacts the overall job market. But what happens or has happened consistently in the past is the birth death index, you know, like you go back to 2008, um, the BLS survey was still being more optimistic than the household survey because it was, you know, kind of lagging the, the, the reality on the ground, which is in some ways understandable. But by the time you got to 2010, they, they had corrected the, the gap 
and you know took away the the jobs that they had guesstimated had been created and and re- restored you know more accurate numbers but we're now going on i think 24 25 months of where the revisions are still going the wrong direction and the gap between the household survey and the BLS survey is, is getting wider and at some point they're going to have to fix it um because it's starting to be embarrassing. Like people, people are starting to notice that these surveys are widening and widening, and that's not the purpose of the birth-death index. The purpose is to keep them closer in line. And so I, I'm, 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 I don't like being conspiratorial. I don't believe that anyone out there is doing this on purpose. But there's something fundamentally wrong when every single month they're adding about 100,000 jobs um, to the to the gap the gap should be tightening not widening as services accounted for more than half of new hires in june government jobs made up more than a quarter of new jobs on face value um those government jobs could weaken right in, in the coming months so my question is the overall take the uh, labor markets where really are they at well you know again i uh, i completely reject uh, you're looking at this uh, monthly labor report because even if it was correct, and I don't think it's remotely close to being correct, but even if it was correct, uh, it is a lagging indicator. It is, you know, if people are making decisions as to how to invest their money based upon this monthly labor report, uh, they should recognize that this labor report is not leading where the economy is going to go. It's lagging where the economy is going to go. What is a leading indicator and what is established as a leading indicator of where the economy is going to go is the number of joblessness uh, that, that occurs. You know, And we get that number every week. I happen to think that number is uh, statistically more valid than the the monthly labor report numbers, and that weekly number is showing that uh, you know we've paused, if you will. We're not really adding you know a lot of jobs, and we're not really losing a lot of jobs. We're in a period of pause, uh, and and I think that that's. Uh, pretty accurate relative to what is going on uh, in the economy. Also, I think the economy is is in a, a period of trying to decide which direction it's going to go in. But in terms of the stat that you mentioned, John, about uh, the manufacturing jobs, um, you know, there there was another report that came out last week, which uh, is produced by something called the Institute of Supply Management, the ISM report, which uh, is created by uh, asking a whole bunch of purchasing managers at corporations, are you buying more? Are you buying less? Are you paying more for what you're buying? Are you paying less for what you're buying? And what the the ISM report is showing is that, uh, you know, manufacturing is not doing that well, but the service sector is doing relatively well. Uh, so the, the, the issue there is the service sector tends to be more labor intensive than the, um, if you will, manufacturing sector, uh, you know, because you don't have big machines in the service sector, you know, doing the job, you have people doing the jobs, uh, number one. And number two, if the, if the Federal Reserve is really going to be focusing on, you know, which of all of these numbers that they're getting, you know, I think they're going to be focusing on the fact that the ISM numbers are showing that the service sector is still growing. Uh, and that's that's going to make the, uh, if you will, uh, Federal Reserve nervous and probably raise rates a couple of times more this year, certainly more in July. Uh, the average American will look at the headline number unemployment rate down to 3.6% and maybe convince themselves that, right? 3.6. 3.6, correct, yeah. 
with that oh gee that's a wonderful number but uh i mean that just disguises so much you really have to look underneath the hood because uh, i'm thinking of what you said last week dick about the transfer payments making up a big share of the increase in earnings hourly earnings in june grew uh 4.4 percent uh from a year ago are wages really rising net net well, in the private sector, they're rising, but they're they're not rising, you know, uh, as rapidly as core as the core inflation rate, which is which is, in my view, a problem. But you know, what was shocking about the numbers uh, that, that we talked about last week is it showed that basically ninety uh, percent of the increase in uh, incomes in personal income was coming from transfer payments. Uh, the the adjustment in social security uh, payments, you know, to the inflation rate, which was a big hit to the government. But a big benefit to Social Security recipients. There was, a, for, for whatever reason, the, a big increase in Medicare and Medicare Medicaid payments, presumably because of a, a hangover from COVID. So that's where the personal income was coming from. It wasn't because, you know, people were earning, you know, more than the rate of inflation, which they are not. Uh, so, you know, that as I say, we're in this pause position, you know, we, you know, the inflation rate, which comes out tomorrow, I don't think is going to be a terrifically good number. I don't think it's going to be horrible, but I, I don't think it's going to be a terrifically good number. Uh, and, and at the same point in time, you know, the economy, uh, is, is showing some weakening. Uh, CNBC does a report once a week, which I, I kind of find interesting in which, uh, they look at insider buying and selling in stocks. And the one that they did this morning showed that uh, a whole bunch of billionaires, uh, the Walmart family, for example, uh, basically are selling and that the inside and, and that's consistent with a number of other i think they mentioned oracle also but i mean that's consistent with what a number of other billionaires are doing they've been selling their positions in their companies while uh the insider buying uh, index was at one of the lowest levels uh that they they've seen in, in quite some time so people who are working in these companies are not feeling you know that the economy is really strong and really going to move ahead the federal reserve feels it's got to you know continue to fight inflation. So we're in this middle point in which the economy is making a decision as to which way it's about to go. I'm wondering, Dick, if the surge in transfer payments could be related to just a lot of baby boomers retiring, uh, a lot of people just uh, claiming disability benefits, just a real, it's a negative in some levels. Well, aside yeah, yeah, from right. misguiding us on the rise in hourly labor rate. Yeah, no, but the point is that, you know, if someone retires that means that they were being employed and they were getting income, right? And, you know, if they're now getting that income from the government as opposed to the private sector, I, I don't think that's, that increases the, uh, the, uh, personal income. It, it, it changes the source of personal income in a very negative way. The government's giving it as opposed to, you know, productive laborers giving it. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that that would have a major impact on the personal income numbers. We'll have new numbers coming up this week on inflation. The latest, the CPI right now is at 4%, but we'll see where that's headed. But wh where do you see that, Dick and Matt? There seems to be some evidence that prices are dropping across many sectors. And you have some new, 
well, let's call it research or some information on the used car market, Dick, which is extraordinary and, and very interesting. Yeah, well, I, stepping aside from the broad <laughs> issues, I mean, there's something called the Mannheim Index, which uh, comes out once a month, and it's a reflection of used car prices in the United States. And, and what it's showing is a pretty substantial decline, uh, you know, in, in the last couple of months. In fact, you know, the, the, this index, uh, you know, uh, a year ago was at the 260 level, and it's now at the uh, 220 level, 215 level. And that that's indicating that there's been a substantial decline in used car prices. Now, the reason that that is happening is because uh, new car sales are increasing. And, and what's happening is the, the supply chain problems, which resulted in not that many new cars in inventory at the dealers, has has opened up. So the dealers are now getting, you know, a, a large amount of new cars. Ultimately, they'll start to discount the price of those new cars. Uh, and those sales in the new car market will take away from the sales in the used car market. So that's why I think you're seeing the, the index go down. But I was on a phone call just, you know, with someone today talking about this and they were experienced. They, they related their personal experience, which makes the index become a lot more meaningful. Uh, this, this particular individual married two kids, you know, 820 uh, FICO score, you know, bought a car a few years ago for $63,000. All right. The value of that car today they borrowed as much money as they could to buy the car. So it was a, a seven-year loan uh, at a 7% interest rate. And and now, you know, the, the value of that car that they paid $63,000 for is 36000 And the the size of the loan on that car is 45000 So they're upside down $9,000 on this car, and they still have four more years to make payments on this car uh, at the the rate of the higher interest rate and the $63,000 initial price. So that takes this index, which is just kind of a flat number or a picture in in, in a graph, uh, away from being that to a real number. And what does that real number mean? It means, in my view, this particular individual wouldn't dare to fail to make the payments because they're protecting their 820, you know, score. But, you know, I think the vast, a vast number of Americans are going to say, wait a minute, I got screwed here. I paid top dollar for this car. The car isn't worth anywhere near what I paid for it. And, you know, the loan on this car is bigger than the value of the car. I'm going to stick the car back to the guy who sold it to me and let him worry about it. So I think that uh, loan losses on, uh, you know, used car sales are going to skyrocket here. And there are two companies, of course, um, both of which we have sell recommendations on. And again, the proviso, we have no interest in these companies in any way, shape or another. But Capital One and Ally Financial are two of the biggest uh, car lenders in the United States. J.P. Morgan Chase, which we, in fact, have a buy recommendation on for other reasons, uh, you know, these companies are going to be hit with huge loan losses in the current quarter. And those loan losses are only going to grow in the next two to three quarters. So I think that uh, whether you take that individual example I gave, buying a $63,000 car that's worth $36,000 and I owe 40, this, this couple owes $45,000 on that car, 
uh, you know, or the Mannheim index, which goes from, from 260 down to 215, showing what the value drop has been over the, over a year in used car prices. Or you, you take a look at, you know, the real world and say, what the heck's going to happen to the guys who made those loans, which would be Ally and Capital One and companies like JP Morgan. Uh, they're going to lose money. They're going to lose money on these loans because people, people are not going to lock themselves into these long-term loans, you know, and, and on, on, on units, uh, cars that aren't worth anything near what the loan value uh, that they're paying off is. So I, th- I think it's going to be a major issue, uh, which is going to crop up more and more in the papers over the next few months. Can I counter that a little bit, Dick? I kind of feel like, you know, the, the numbers are, are sad and, and I don't dispute the numbers. But I do dispute the idea that collectively society is full of people that will just stop making payments because it turns out that they're underwater. It takes it, it costs a lot to a person to ruin their credit, to go through um, you know a, a default on a loan, to have your car seized. There's a reason you have a car. It's because you need it. Generally, generally, most people in America, because we don't have you know the the vast infrastructure of, of transit like New York City has ha- relies on their car for their daily needs to get their kids to school, to get their jobs. And if it's underwater, that's terrible. That's not, it's not a fun feeling. But if you default on that loan, then someone's going to come and take your car and now you're without a car and you have to go get one. And the idea that it's beneficial to you to default on the loan and then go and try and get a new loan at a more reasonable valuation well, your your interest rate's going to spike because whoever lent, whoever is going to be trying to make you the next loan will know that you just defaulted on your old loan and you're not going to be trustworthy. And therefore, they're going to require a huge down payment or massive interest rates to compensate for the fact that you're not a worthy borrower. And the price you pay for defaulting will, is not worth it to the vast majority of people who are going to be underwater. And in the circumstances where there's nothing they can do because maybe they've lost their job or it's you know that for whatever reason they can't afford the car payment anymore even then you know there's been anecdotal data going back years that people prioritize their cell phone payments and their car payments and you know the the analogy that 2008 when everyone did the jingle mail and, and mailed back in the keys to their mortgage company is not necessarily proper because the vast majority of jingle mail was people who were you know in that in the movie the big short you know the 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 exotic dancer that had five homes that were all spec homes for flipping purposes, and they mailed in the keys on the homes they weren't living in, not not the, the house that they actually needed. So I, I don't know that, I, I agree that it's a problem, I agree that it's a negative drag on the economy, but I don't necessarily think that Capital One's going to be stuck with hundreds of thousands of cars and hundreds of thousands of defaulted loans, because people do need their transportation. Well, you're right about that. I mean, uh, when you go outside places like New York or Chicago or, um, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, et cetera, which have, uh, you know, very good, uh, you know, transit systems, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the need for an automobile is a lot less. But if you come down here to Florida, uh, and you don't have a car, you can't get to your job, period. Uh, and, and so you, you're going to hold on to your car, maybe even longer than you're going to hold on to your house. But in, you know, 2007 to 2009, there were a lot of people who gave back their keys that that didn't own five houses. People just went to live with their parents or they uh, rented a, a home or uh, they did something of that nature, but they 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 got out of the mortgage. Um, and, you know, three years later, 
uh, you know, the, the, the credit problem that they ran into was pretty much washed away because uh, the people who wanted to sell them a new car, you know, wanted to sell them a new car and weren't going to look. Uh, so I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, we'll see. We'll see whether the numbers uh, get to be as high as, they, as I think they will be. But, uh, you know, we'll report back to you uh, almost on a monthly basis about this because I think I think you will see a big increase in uh, in, 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 in bad car loans. Um, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see. So, so literally, Dick, if I understand, they would just hand back, the, bring the car back to the lot and um, default on the loan and buy the same model at a far cheaper price. That's essentially well, yeah, yeah. what... Uh, well, it's, it's similar. I'm, the first job that I ever got when I graduated from college was uh, repossessing cars. So you, they don't hand back the keys. You go to their house and you pick up the car and you drive it away. That's, that's the way I hope you had the sheriff with you. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> anyway, that is, that is the real world, okay? And and, and the fact <laughs> is that uh, there are there are alternatives. You know, you can uh, carpool. You can, uh, you know, you actually can get a, a cheap car from, uh, you know, a dealer's lot that's trying to get rid of stuff uh, and is willing to take whatever they can get. I mean, so, uh, but, you know, I, 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 I do think that we are going to see uh, ups set in the car market the way we saw it in the uh, housing market and you know if you're looking for a new car i think uh, you're going to get one at a good price in the next couple of months yeah because you have a note and it gets to the heart of this that what's driving this economy right now in, in large part is the consumer and you say it's all up to the consumer to keep um the any kind of growth we have in the economy and yet at the same time we have this massive credit card debt around one trillion and that's been rising average household carrying ten thousand in card debt total household debt now around 17 trillion and then of course we could talk about federal and private student loans which they're going to have to be paid, even though Biden is talking about working out some relief. But I, I, I don't see that happening. It's a consumer-driven economy. Consumers are starting to maybe feel some stress, and then there's some angry consumers, as you mentioned, the auto buyer. There, one example, I'm sure. Where does it all lead to? Well, you see that you you hit on it. That is that is the critical issue at this moment. In other words, people are feeling good. They they have a job. Uh, the, the, the stock market has gone up, uh, for the last six months. Uh, their housing prices may have come down, you know, maybe four, six percent over the last 12 months, but the housing price is still way above where it was. So they feel wealthy. They feel an income coming in and they, uh, are decided not to deny themselves anything. Uh, and therefore, when you take a look at the broad statistical numbers, they show that, uh, people are buying recreational vehicles. They're buying recreational products of all types you know they're uh taking cruises uh they are you know basically carnival cruise line is all booked up so to speak uh the airlines are benefiting enormously from it uh they're eating out uh you know not not at home so when you put that all into the the gross national product numbers and you say okay where is the growth coming from in the u.s economy it's coming from that it's coming from people buying things that they don't necessarily need, but they definitely want. And they want them because they haven't had them for three years with, with COVID, you know, from 2019 to 2022. And they have, as I said, they're happy. I got a job. My stock is, stocks are going up. My house is, is, is worth a hell of a lot more than what I paid for it. So why should I deny myself anything? So now, you know, they, they are buying and, and that is the major source of growth in the U.S. economy. 
the other side is what you're mentioning, Joe, which is, well, initially they were buying with money that they were getting uh, from these government stimulus programs. Uh, they were get, and that's what that transfer payment argument that we were just talking about was was, was basically saying. But in other words, they, they, they were getting the money from, uh, you know, uh, transfer payments. They were getting money from government largesse. They were getting money because they just went back to work. And now they seem to be overspending the money that they're getting. And therefore, they're starting to borrow at, at a much more rapid rate. And they're borrowing on their credit card, you know, at, at a significantly uh, increased rate. They're borrowing against, you know, all of a sudden home equity loans, which were dead, you know, 15 years ago and look like they'd never come back again ever. Home equity loans are coming up again because the value of the house is up and the rate on the home equity loan is lower than the rate on the credit card. And the home equity loan, you know, gives you a tax, uh, tax benefit, whereas the credit card interest does not give you a tax benefit. So now we're going to find out, you know, are these people going to keep borrowing to spend these, to spend on these things, which they don't need because the, the expenditures on, on clothing, on uh, food, on home improvement, all the stuff that was done in, in the 2019 and 2022 period has been cut back. So are people going to continue to borrow money to buy products which make their life more pleasant, because the recreational products, travel products, et cetera, are they going to stop? Now, my, my, my gut feel is they're going to stop. Uh, and my gut feel is we're going to see an increase in loan losses, uh, you know, not just in cars, as, as, I, as I was mentioning, but across the spectrum. And I think that, you know, that is going to have an impact on the economy. It's certainly going to have an impact on the banking industry. Uh, and, and I think it's something that uh, we've got to think about because if, if this, if these consumers stop spending, on all of this recreational stuff, this economy is not going to grow. I completely agree with that. I, I kind of feel like, and I'm on, I'm traveling right now, and the people we talk to, it sure seems like we all have this cabin fever that's remembering in remembrance of the 2020 days when we were shut in in our house, and people are spending because they want to get out. And 2020 and the COVID lockdowns reminded everyone that life is short and the country is big, and there's a lot of great places you can go, and people are doing it. But if everyone runs out of money or the credit card, you know, uh, conveyor belt stop, at some point it's going to really hit the economy. And, you know, there, there's so many numbers out there that are confusing, but one of them is that the consumer is still continuing to spend and it's seemingly above income levels. And if they're drawing into savings, at some point that's got to stop. And that which can't continue forever won't. So I, I totally agree that the consumer is driving the economy right now and, and it's unclear where they're getting the money from. Which brings us to bank stress tests. We spoke about it last week and on previous shows. Dick, uh, you have a new note out on it. Um, you're skeptical of the way the Fed is presenting this data, even though they do admit that it's, I guess, in effect, that it's just not perfect data. And we have to take away some level of humility, but they... They basically audit 23 banks annually, right? This is in the wake of the um, 2008 crash. And they set up these um, hypothetical scenarios. How would these banks perform if we had a severe global recession? Unemployment hit 10%. Commercial real estate values dropped, um, I don't know, like a 
by double digits and home prices also dropped and um, some of the big banks are in 23 banks in total and uh, they they seem for the most part right they got a quite a clean bill of bill of health but you have a warning here and you've repeated it again in the past days well the reason why i'm repeating it is because the banks are in trouble all right uh, in other words there are two tests that are done um one is called DFAST, D-F-A-S-T, which is the Dodd-Frank Act Stress Test. Uh, the Dodd-Frank Act Stress Test is uh, based upon uh, determining whether the American banking system can handle a depression. Uh, and what they determined in this uh, recent DFAST test is that they, the American banks could handle a depression. How the hell they really know that, you know, I think is is beyond my comprehension. But the way they come to that conclusion is they ask a whole bunch of banks, you know, what would happen to you if you were in a depression? How much money would you lose? How many loans would you not make, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they came away with the belief that, uh, you know, these banks would be okay. But we're not in a depression. We don't have any experience of a depression, you know, for almost 100 years. Uh, and, you know, for them to come out and say the banking industry in the United States is not in trouble uh, because, you know, if we were in a depression, which we're not, we would uh, come out of it okay. But um, the point is that there's a second test. And the second test uh, is something called the CCAR test. Uh, C-C-A-R is the Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review. Now, the CCAR test doesn't start over the assumption as to whether you're in a depression or not. It takes a look at the banking industry the way it exists at the present time in the United States. And that's uh, the test of the 23 biggest banks. And that test is not saying all these banks are in great shape. That test is saying, you know, these banks need more capital. These banks need to change their, uh, you know, their, their accounting activities. All the stuff that we were screaming about last week, uh, they, they, they're agreeing with that view. Uh, and what you're going to see is, you know, a whole bunch of regulations coming out to hit these banks now because uh, of the fact that they have overstated the, their equity uh, because their assets are not what they claim they are valued to be. And and the, the Fed is, is, is going to move in on them and, and, and you know, hit them for it. Uh, now, the biggest banks in the United States won't get hit as hard. They'll, they'll be requested to put up the greatest amount of increased equity, but they, they have the money. There's no question about it. Where it will hurt is when you start to get to smaller sized banks where they uh, will also get a, a much smaller demand for increased equity, but they don't have the money. So, you know, I think that, that these tests are, are the first test, you know, is a farce. The second test, you know, uh, in fact, I was recently interviewed and I said that that test was done in Disneyland by Tinkerbell. Uh, <laughs> let me show what I thought of it. But the, the second test is not. The test, second test is, is much more realistic and shows a, a different, a, a different point of view altogether. But there are, there is a broader issue here. And the broader issue is that the banking industry in the United States has been losing market share for decades. You know, that's because it, you know, companies, uh, well, technology has changed to the point where companies can access the capital markets more easily than they did before. That the technology has changed and the money supply growth, you know, in, in recent years has been huge so that, you know, non-bank financial companies 
are able to use technology to get at customers that normally you can only get through the bank because the the, the increase in money supply has resulted in uh, private equity firms, uh, you know, uh, you know, hedge funds, uh, you know, a variety of uh, different types of of uh, mutual fund organizations who can get at this money and make these loans, and so the the biggest problem that the banks are facing is that they don't have uh, the ability to grow their market share. The second problem that they're facing is that, you know, they're not going to hold on to their deposits if they don't increase the rate that they pay on deposits, you know, relatively soon. And if they don't hold on to their deposits, then basically they can't make loans. If they can't make loans, then they can't grow their earnings. So the net effect is, uh, I do think, that the CCAR test is valid. And I do think it has pointed out the weaknesses in the industry. And I do think that we're going to see, uh, you know, negative results, you know, in, in banking and in the industry for that reason. So, Dick, we're still in a banking crisis. And just based on what you said there, uh, can you give us some sense of how many banks are facing trouble and what's their size and scale? Let's... Uh, split the banking industry into three parts, all right? Part number one are the banks that do investment banking, you know, that uh, handle mergers and acquisitions, that handle uh, new companies coming to market to sell their stock for the first time, or who are doing secondary offerings, okay? Those banks appeared to be in a lot of trouble until the month of June. In the month of June, everything changed. All of a sudden, you know, the stock market had been roaring uh, since October of, uh, you know, two, 2022. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of new uh, offerings of, of stock in, in the market. Uh, there was a big increase in uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions. So those banks, which I thought would be running into real trouble uh, at the end of uh, this quarter, are not running into real trouble. Uh, that would be, you know, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs on one hand, which will do better than people think. Um, still won't do great, but they'll do better than what people think. It's J.P. Morgan Chase. It's Bank of America. It's, uh, you know, Citigroup. Citigroup may be the biggest surprise in, in all the names that I gave. All right. The second category of banks would be banks which tend to lend money to businesses uh, as their primary occupation. They don't run, they don't make mortgages too much and they don't lend money to individuals too much. Those banks, uh, you know, are seeing weak loan demand because corporations have reduced their inventories. Uh, and those banks, you know, are going to see, um, you know, a difficult uh, quarter, yeah, but, but, but basically they should be okay. They, you know, are, are going to have flat to up, uh, you know, moderate, uh, moderate increase in earnings. Then we get to the third category of banks, which I'll lump together. Banks which, you know, handle the consumer. You know, they do consumer lending, uh, they do mortgage loans, they do fixed rate loans, uh, or they're just small in size. Those banks are going to have a lot of trouble. I think that those banks are going to see big increases in loan losses. I think that uh, they're going to be looking to sell out. I think the Federal Reserve is not going to let them sell out. Uh, in other words, I think you're seeing this big, huge demand on the part of those smaller banks to find a buyer for the bank. They want to be bought. But the Federal Reserve has to approve the purchase. The Fed is not going to approve it because if the Fed thinks it's a bank that's in trouble, it's not going to allow our small bank that's in trouble to be sold to a bigger bank, putting the bigger bank in trouble 
costing the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation more money, so they won't allow these mergers. So I think the small banks in the United States will see more failures. And that's, of course, the, the largest number. There's roughly 3,000 of those banks, uh, maybe closer to 3,500 of those banks versus 1,000 of the ones that I don't think are in trouble. And that 3,500, I think, is going to see a great deal of stress, a great deal of failures, and a great deal of problems. That's not something the economy would welcome and it would have a chilling effect on the economy. There's consumer psychology. They're consumer-driven kind of banks like the Allies you mentioned and Capital yeah. One. Yeah, yes, yes. Or they're just a small bank like the Bank of Hawaii or, you know, uh, any number of smaller, you know, banks one can mention. But but the point, and again, you know, just to be clear, we do not have any financial connection with any of these companies. We do not have any reason to take, to make a, a recommendation other than, you know, pure speculation as to what we believe will happen as opposed to having any, uh, if you will, money in the game, uh, one way or the other. But, um, Remember, the four biggest banks in the United States are roughly uh, 50% of the banking industry in the United States. And if you, if you then add in, you know, uh, the next uh, 25 banks beyond that, you know, you, you, you're coming up to maybe uh, 70% of all of the, the all, all of the bank if you will, customers in the United States. So the, the, even though there's thousands of banks, you know, in that group that we're not mentioning, uh, they they are they don't have enough customers to shake the economy. Dick and Matt, we like to talk about China and um, foreign relations and what's going on in different parts of the globe. Janet Yellen came back from China. Um, there's a sort of a big chill between the U.S. and China. Do you think she has eased? tensions? Has it made any material difference? Is she setting diplomacy on the right footing? It, it seems to me almost like, on the one hand, a, an important move to set relations right, but on the other, sort of a knee-jerk reaction because there's great fear, and I'm reading between the lines, in both China and the US about what could happen if we don't cooperate. Well, I think I think the answer to all your questions is yes, 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 yes. I think that uh, it was a very important meeting. Particularly, I would link it to the Blinken meeting, uh, uh, this meeting, and uh, apparently there are other. The Commerce Secretary is going, uh, you know, next week or next month, or, you know, there's a whole lineup of American, uh, if you will, uh, cabinet members who are going to uh, China, which I think is exactly the right thing to do. Number one. Number two, I do think that they are getting uh, some uh, positive, uh, you know, results in, in doing this. And number three, I think that. Uh, you know, the reason why it's likely to be more and more successful as time goes on is because China needs the help, right? I mean, China is not in a position where uh, unemployment is low, where uh, the economy is now touted as being maybe bigger than the U.S. economy, where, you know, the growth rates are, you know, between five and eight percent every quarter. You know, China is in a position where they could have negative growth. Uh, as, as Matt has pointed out, 20% of the uh, young people are unemployed. Uh, the uh, ability to jumpstart the consumer side of the China economy is not working because people don't trust that government and therefore they say they're saving uh, and, and they're not overspending, uh, you know, at, at, at the current time. So China has got to start reaching out to the world again uh, to buy their products. And, and to do that, they can't take this, uh, you know, very 
militaristic, uh, very you know strong uh, position that uh, Xi Jinping has has been you know stating over and over again every way he opens up his mouth. But the fact of the matter is that uh, I, I think this this is going to work. I think it's the right thing to do. I think China is is ready and willing to 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 cooperate. We're ready and willing to cooperate, and I think the results are going to be positive. I feel like China's problems are largely internal. I mean, you look at what the rest of the world did in response to COVID. Almost every country or every major economy that could afford it subsidized people who lost their jobs or couldn't make it to work or couldn't work or whatever through direct transfer payments from the governments to the people. China did not do that. The other thing with China is, you know, on a national level, they don't have that much, if any, of, of national debt that is is hard to manage. It's really on the consumer balance sheet from people speculating on real estate and from local governments doing you know local regional investment via debt. And I think China could try to avoid the path that Japan took back in the late 80s and early 90s when they, they commenced the beginning of their, their lost decades by subsidizing the people in ways that help their, their balance sheets. And they might, you know, it seems that they're shying away from subsidizing regional governments and supporting those types of debts, but they could help the, the, the random consumer who is, you know, put down a down payment to buy a house and the construction company started building the house, but then the construction company went out of business because uh, the cost of materials went up so high by, by subsidizing the construction industry and subsidizing home building. And I do think China could do a lot of things internally that could help them avoid, you know, the, the, the lost decades that Japan had, but also, you know, as they as their population declines, they could use their strong national balance sheet to support the domestic economy. Um, I think my personal opinion is them focus if they if if the U.S. is right and they're focused on on invading and conquering and taking over Taiwan, it seems like a massive distraction when they could be doing stuff that could support their their economy. But in terms of Janet Yellen's visit, I felt like you know there's there seems to be this this poker match between the U.S. and China in the sense of no one wants to blink first. And I think it's good that America, quote unquote, blinked first, you know, with Blinken going over and Yellen going over because the Chinese are not coming here. And I think historically you would think the Chinese would be the ones visiting the United States, but trade is good. Contact is good. All of this stuff is better when, when they're speaking face to face and develop relationships and develop the contacts. And it's not just at the highest level. You know, when Janet Yellen travels, I don't know how many people she travels with, but it's got to be if not in the hundreds, in the dozens and dozens of, you know, junior staffers and, and people beneath her that are more of the permanent bureaucracy of the United States. And if those people can go over and make, you know, person-to-person contacts and exchange phone numbers and, and, and develop texting or WhatsApp relationships with their, with their colleagues over there, all of these types of contacts are, are beneficial to not just trade, but to national stability. And, you know, the way things get done generally is the, the lower level bureaucrats, you know, kind of bounce ideas off each other. And, and eventually ideas, the ones that work and the ones that can be achieved float to the top. By the time someone like Secretary Yellen goes over, she has a laundry list of things that can be accomplished and tensions that can be reduced just by having the relationships and the contacts. So I was very pleased to see her go. I think it's good for the world. I think it's good for the economy. And I think it's good that it shows that both countries recognize that we need each other. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we mentioned it or not, but 
the CEO of one of the largest defense contractors, I think it was Northrop Grumman, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong, mentioned how if if we had a trade war with China, it would be materially devastating to our national defense industry because of all the raw materials that they depend on um, come from China. And it's it's just implausible to me that we would, you know, intentionally go down a path of confrontation when it's so clear that the benefits of of trade are are superior to a con- a conflict with China. So I was very pleased with it, and I think um, hopefully it, it leads to more contacts between the two countries. In addition, you know, China is is upsetting you know a huge number of countries. I mean, this whole uh, you know I think they call it the nine dotted line thing in 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 the south china sea uh, if you if you take a look at a picture of what that means you know they they've kind of taken the whole south china sea and said that it's part part of china and and that is resulting in major problems the philippines have now uh complained I think 16 times to the united nations about uh chinese uh you know aggression the vietnamese you know were were actually almost put on a war footing uh over you know uh I Islands there. You know, they're, they're fighting with Japan over islands. You know, they're fighting with Taiwan over Taiwan. They're fighting with, uh, you know, the Indonesians uh, because they now have, you know, come into waters that Indonesia claims belong to them. At the same time, they've got all of these debts outstanding uh, to people who can't repay them. And these people, you know, are, are, are getting somewhat antagonistic to China. So I think China realizes that the time has come to back up. So the net effect is, I, I think that, you know, the, the pressures on both countries uh, to, to work together are increasing for both positive and negative reasons. But, but I would like to throw something in on Russia because, you know, the, the, the information I'm getting on Russia right now is, is, is you know, amazing. Uh, number one, uh, Russia's uh, government showed a profit last month. Despite all of these restrictions and, and these controls that were supposed to bring the government to its knees, they actually showed a profit for the first time in multiple months. Uh, and the reason that they showed a profit was because the banking industry showed this huge profit. So, you know, the banking industry was what we, you know, put all these restrictions on. And the banking industry has got a huge profit. The country's got a huge profit. And then, you know, I'm hearing, uh, uh, and, and obviously I, I use my favorite sources for this, but the point is I'm hearing that this counteroffensive by uh, Ukraine is not working. Uh, you know, it's not gained any meaningful ground. So, what we're probably going to see out of this NATO meeting, and I think today, is you will see a whole bunch of very militaristic uh, statements coming out of NATO, you know, more jets to the Ukraine, cluster bonds that we already heard about, you know, other countries committing to, uh, you know, uh, Canada might even, they supposedly have committed troops to uh, Ukraine. Uh, so so that uh, this war is going to be long and hard uh, because ne- neither side at the moment, uh, although it seems that the, the, the needle is moving in Russia's favor at the moment, uh, neither side is, is willing to give up or give in. I, I think that's something that, that we're going to have to consider. Uh, you know, because this thing is not is not going to end. Interesting to hear you say about the banks making a profit. Um, Big profit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just extraordinary. So you, you expect more muscular language from NATO and the allies, and um, it could be a long drawn out war. 
just quickly back to China, but we can hop into the Russian uh, quagmire, if you will, in a moment, Dick. In 2020, uh, the US imported $437 billion worth of goods from China and the US exported $124 billion uh, to China. So a huge trade imbalance. Um, should we be concerned about that? Is that a level playing field or am I misreading something here? No, it's of great concern. I mean, and, and, and when uh, Matt mentioned the defense, uh, you know, I, I think it was Raytheon that actually uh, made that statement. Ray, you know, Raytheon, which is one of the biggest supplier of defense material to the United States and, and other places around the world, uh, is saying that, you know, they must have access to China, Chinese goods. Um, you know, what, what is uh, indicated there is what we've been talking about for over a year now, which essentially is that uh, we've got to build more stuff in the United States. We have to use uh, more of our own raw materials, our raw materials from protected sources. Uh, we have to uh, increase our defense, etc. cetera. Uh, I think all those things are, are, are have to happen because um, you can't have uh, that type of imbalance o- over, you know, in an unending period. In addition to which, there was an article uh, in one of the presses uh, that I read uh, today that India will overtake the United States in in size by the year 2075, which I'm not going to worry about in my case. But the point is, you know, uh, there's now thoughts that both China and India could you know put the United States into third position as in terms of uh, its position in the world? Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But it means that the United States has got to build stuff here on its own uh, to protect its own interests. We'll pick up on Russia, China, and all the geopolitical um, issues next week, and on the domestic issues. But we're out of time, Dick and Matt. A, a great conversation, and until next week, and episode seventy-eight. Take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.